You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. All right, if you guys would go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2, as we continue on in our Advent series this morning titled, the gift that keeps on giving. What we're looking at is the gift that keeps on giving ultimately is Christ. So this year, God's greatest gift, the most treasurable gift that he could have possibly given was his very own son. That's what he gave. And through Christ, what we have is we have the gift that keeps on giving of God's love. Today, we have the gift that keeps on giving of God's peace. All of these things are made available, not through actions, work, efforts of ourselves. It's made possible to us by and through and in God's grace and through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Luke chapter two is where we're going to be at today. Very short verse, but just to give a little context of what's going on, we're going to start at the beginning. Uh, uh, Chapter two, verse eight is where we will start. So turn with him there. Luke chapter two, verse eight. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is well pleased. We're going to be camping out right there in verse 14 today, but let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of year, Advent, where we get to look back, Father, to the promises you made that we see have been fulfilled in Christ, but also that we get to look forward to the arrival, Jesus, of you coming again. We can trust in the promise you will come again to make all things right, because God, you promised that you would send a Messiah and you did that faithfully. Father, apart from you and apart from your son, the Prince of Peace, we don't have peace. We cannot have peace. We will be a restless people. Thank you, Jesus, that Christmas is about that. I know there's so many things we can think about with peace. Help us today be reminded and think of a person, your son, Jesus Christ, and the work that he did, the work that he accomplished. Christmas is so much bigger than gifts and everything that we've made it. It's about the greatest gift that you have given. A baby in a manger shows that, God, you came to solve our problem with peace with our restlessness and to bring us peace. Quiet souls this morning, give us ears that are tentative this morning. Give us hearts that are ready to receive. Let us listen for ourselves and not for those around us. God, encourage us, strengthen us, heal us, challenge us, exhort us, rebuke us where our lives are living inconsistent to who we are in you, Jesus. Father, fill me with your presence, with your power and with your spirit. Fill us in this time. We need you. We know there's so many in our church family that are sick. And so we pray for healing for all of them. And ultimately we pray for the healing that your word brings this morning to the gospel in Jesus name. Amen. Our main point is going to be peace and pleasure and presence. So I'll say that one more time. Our main point is going to be peace and pleasure and presence. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And I would argue to say that everyone in our world longs for peace. We want peace. I don't know anyone in their stable right mind who would say that they want to live in a state of constant turmoil or chaos. 
we want peace. In fact, you can look back at the history of beauty pageants and so many people say, what's the one thing that you wish? And they would say for world peace. And so we know there's this longing for peace. And so I would argue that everyone in here today, whether you're a Christian or not, is seeking peace somehow through something in some way, because we long for that. Our souls long for that. We recognize that we need peace. We want peace. We desire peace. The question is, where are we turning to or what are we turning to in order to gain peace? What does God's word have to say about this? There are many, many techniques that people attempt for peace. I'll read some of them. These come from many sources online, but the majority of these come from counseling centers. It's not a knock, just saying, this is what is posted. I'm gonna save you the time and trouble. If you're like, boy, I'm longing for inner peace. I was thinking about Googling it. I got it right for you. I've summarized just about all the content that I could find on Google for, for how to find inner peace right here in these nine steps. So here you go. Step one, the way you can have peace is to maintain good self-care and hygiene. Number two, serve others to help yourself. Thankfully, that's not selfish. Number three, spend time in nature. Number four, be grateful. Number five, declutter. Maybe that's your home, your car, whatever that is. Number six, do a social media detox. Number seven, stay clear of negativity. Number eight, laugh a lot. And number nine, express yourself through art. I'm not saying any of these are bad in and of themselves, but when our world is trying to solve a macro cosmic problem of peace, and that's what it is, we look to the things that humans can do and a simple list of techniques thinking, surely one of these things is going to solve this deepest problem that I have with myself of a lack of peace. Here's the problem. What if you don't have access to clean water? How do you have good hygiene if you live in a third world country and might not have access to clean water? What if you get in a horrendous accident and you can no longer walk or go out in nature? What if you work in law enforcement what if you work for DHS or what if you're a counselor and you are surrounded by negativity? Does that mean that you can never have peace in what you do in this world or in the job that you have? Because it says to make sure just kind of clear yourself from all negativity. That's difficult when you live in a fallen world. So what does our world turn to? Our world turns to a list that men and women can do and accomplish through technique. Our world also turns to things that need to be removed. And so if we can recognize, and if the people in the room can recognize, and I can, recognize, and I can recognize, we have a problem with peace. And then we can also recognize that the way the world tries to solve this problem is through a list of techniques and things that men and women can do or remove from their lives, then we can start to see that is actually going to produce anything but peace. Why? Because we're the problems that there's a lack of peace in the world. And so the first place we need to go is we need to go and figure out why is there a lack of peace in the world? Where did that even come from? And then we go back to the beginning of our Bibles and we recognize that there was peace for a couple days, for a few days, for a couple pages. And then there was no peace. Why? Because God created man and woman to live and dwell with him. Sin entered the world through man's rebellion against God. And then from that moment, what happened is the relationship with humankind and God has been severed. And so since then, and we see this in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. And so at that point, they're like, man, we got to do something. And so they try to deal with their sin and their shame and they, they, they grab fig leaves and they put those on. 
That's the first time in the Bible we see man's attempt to try to deal with our problem of peace, of shame, and sin. For sure, we can do something. There's this massive problem. We've just severed our relationship with God. We've brought sin into the world. Now, the world has fallen and cursed. Surely, some fig leaves will bring us some peace. We can look at that and knock it. But then we have a list today that's produced through many counseling organizations saying, here's how you can have more peace. Here's the problem. This separation, this chasm that existed between man and mankind, I'll just say it this way. You will not have peace, true and lasting peace, until you have all of your peace with the Prince of Peace. Or another way to say it is you will not have true peace until you are reconciled back to God, but we cannot do it. Just simply put, we cannot do it. So where do we start? Where did things go wrong? At the beginning where the fall entered the world and where peace was broken because the relationship with God was broken. So next, what's the need? Well, the need is told right here. Look at Luke chapter two, verse 14. It says, glory to God in the highest. So glory to God and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so what you actually need to have peace is explicitly stated right here. You don't need something removed Instead, you need something added to your life. How many of us believe that if we can have something removed in our life that we'll actually have peace? For instance, if, if you have young children in your home, if maybe they were gone for like two hours and there was quiet, I would have peace. You know the problem? And maybe you've experienced this. The children are gone. It's quiet in your house and you sit down and then you're restless with yourself. Because the problem is not an external thing out there. It's something inside of here. And so we are people that tend to believe peace is the removal of something. Peace is the getting rid of something. Our other lie that we can believe is that what I need to have ultimate peace in my life is I need to have the approval of someone else. If I can gain someone's approval, then I will have peace. Specifically, people live to gain man's approval. So if I can get a spouse's approval, if I can get kids approval, if I can get relationship approval, boss's approval, a coworker's approval, someone's approval, then I will have peace. The problem is, is if you don't get it, you will be restless. And even if you do get their approval, you'll be restless to try to keep up with it. Because if you lose it, it's connected to your peace. Same thing with control. Man, if I could just gain control of this thing in life, it'll bring me peace. It won't. Because the only thing that'll happen then is you'll become restless about losing control of the thing that you work so hard to gain control over. So the scripture tells us here, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What do we need? We need God to be pleased with us. How many of you guys think about your problem of peace that way? What I need is not a technique. What I need is not a list of do's. What I need are not these nine things to bring myself peace. What I actually need is a macro level. I need the God who created the entire universe to look at me and say, with you, I'm well pleased. That's how you get peace. Just wrap it up and be done. That's what it says. But it leaves the question, how? If that's that's our need, and our need is for the creator of the universe to be pleased with us, if our need for peace is for us to be reconciled to God, to have his good pleasure and to have his presence in our life, because that's what peace is, then how do we get it? I'm going to tell you this. Nike lied to you. You can't do it. Okay? Nike says you can do it. The message of Christianity is you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do what needs to be done in order for you to be reconciled to God. That's why 
God gives a promise in the Old Testament, and it's found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says this, and, and, and this, is a, this is a promise, a prophecy that's coming, that's telling what the Messiah is going to be like. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Peace is not found in pragmatics. It's found in a person. Peace is not found in dues. It's found in good news. The good news of the work and person of Jesus Christ is the only way we can have peace. And so how do we do this? How do we get it? How do we accomplish it? And if we can't make God pleased with us, there's only one way. And it's through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Our greatest need is for us to be reconciled to God. When we're reconciled to God and we have his good pleasure and his presence, then we will have peace, but we can't get there by ourselves. So how do we get there? First, you have to recognize something really, really difficult. A, you can't do it. B, your sin needs to be punished. Isn't it interesting that there's a couple things in our society today, especially from the pulpit, that, that preachers try to avoid talking about? Sin and hell. We want to avoid sin and hell. And when we think about sin, oftentimes we'll, we'll, we're like, man, <clears throat> sin is so awful. We, we have this view that sin is some object floating around out there in the universe. But the truth is, and the way the Bible impacts it, is that sin is not out there. Sin is in here. And so what actually needs to be, be, be punished is we need to be punished for our sinful rebellion against God. In fact, God's word calls us enemies of God. So you can't be at peace in your life when you are an enemy of the living God who created you to be in a restored and reconciled relationship with him. You just can't. Jesus, the most kind, tender, compassionate, truthful, and honest, loving person to ever walk the face of this earth had a lot to say about hell, a lot to say about God's wrath. In fact, these are some of the things that Jesus says about hell. <clears throat> he says it's the place of eternal torment in Luke 16, 23, the place of unquenchable fire in Mark 9, 43, where the worm does not die in nine, uh, Mark 9, 48, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret in Matthew 13, 42, and from which there is no return even to warn loved ones in Luke 16, 19. He calls hell a place of outer darkness in Matthew 25, 30, comparing it to Gehenna, Matthew 10, 28, which was a trash dump outside of the walls of Jerusalem where rubbish was burned and maggots abounded. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. If your final destination is to be an object of God's wrath in an eternity of hell, bearing the punishment for your sin, that can't possibly sound peaceful. And so until we recognize that our sin needs to be atoned for, that our sin needs to be punished, that our sins need to be paid for, we won't look to Jesus for a need at all. We will somehow think that I can muster up some techniques that I can try to remove some stuff from my life. But when we recognize that we are completely and utterly helpless, that we are objects of God's wrath because we have sinned and rebelled against him, then we recognize I need someone to step in, that I can't do it. Which leads us to this. Hang a right in your Bible with me and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter five. While you're turning there, let me unpack it like this. Because hearing about sin and hearing about hell is unsettling. But we need to understand this, that if we understand God's holiness, and even in the terms of beauty, then we can understand that sinful man and woman cannot dwell in the presence of something so beautiful and radiant and holy and glorious. When I think of beauty, a few things come to my mind. One is my wife on our wedding day. 
I remember looking at the end of the aisle and thinking, man, that is the most beautiful person I have ever seen. I remember being floored. And I'm like, I, I remember even being so stressed on, on that day. There's a lot of layers to that. But I was like, what is she doing, you know? Like, is she really going to go through with this? But I remember just looking at her and being like, whoa, I still to this day think my wife is the most beautiful person in the world. And then next, I remember when our daughter was born and the nurses handed her to me and, and they're like, here's your daughter. And, I, and the words that came out of my mouth, I held her. I was like, whoa, she's beautiful. And I look at pictures now and I was like, okay, I had some goggles on, you know, like, like parents, you're a little blinded by your kids at birth. I'm just going to let you know that. But I was like, whoa, she's beautiful. I was speechless. Other than that, I was just like, man. And also lived in Reno for so long. And if you've never seen a desert sunset, they're just beautiful. So beautiful. All of these things were created by the, the all beautiful infinite, eternal God. And so when you think about radiant, beautiful things that are finite, those things were created by God. They're just a sliver of God's beauty. And then you think about bringing our sin into the presence of something so beautiful, then you realize that we can stand like Isaiah and not even stand but bow and say, woe am I, a man of unclean lips. My sinfulness doesn't even deserve to be in the presence of something so beautiful and glorious. And so what we need is we need someone to put us at good standing with God. We need someone who can allow us to be reconciled to God so God can look at us with good pleasure, with eyes that are pleased, and we can have his presence. So how does that happen? Well, thankfully, the Bible answers the question, how do we get God to be pleased with us? If there's glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with those with whom he is pleased, look at what Romans 5.1 says. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we have peace with God? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, and specifically through this word called justification. In fact, the entire chapter of Romans chapter 4 is talking about how we are justified not by our works, we are justified by God by believing in Jesus Christ and his works. I mean, read Romans chapter 4 and you will see that over and over and over again. In fact, just go to verse 23 at the end of it. And it says this, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What is justification? If that's how we can have peace with God is through faith in Jesus Christ and be justified. What is it? It's been wrongly defined as just as if we had never sinned because that's only half of what justification is. It's only half of what it is. And, and, and the reason why is because Jesus could have come down from heaven and went straight to the cross. He could have paid the punishment for all of our sins and all of our sin could have been put on him. All of the guilt and punishment our sin deserves could have been put, put on him and God could have poured out his wrath. And he did all of that. In fact, look with me at 2 Corinthians 5.21. You don't have to turn there, but we can look at this together. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So justification, the first part is called imputation. Okay. So the first part of imputation is this, is our sin and the wrath that it deserves, our guilt, our shame, all of that was placed on Jesus Christ upon the cross. And he bore God's righteous wrath for that. But the second part of justification is just as if I had never sinned, but also here's the second part, just as if I had lived a perfect, obedient life to God. 
Jesus didn't come down and go straight to the cross. Jesus came down in a manger and lived a life of willful obedience to God and to God's law every second and every moment of every day. And so the second part of imputation is this. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So first, there's a transfer. Our sin goes on to Jesus. Jesus is fully punished with all of God's wrath for our sin. So that, look, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Double imputation is what it's called. So our sin goes to him. And then his perfect obedient life is imputed to us. Justification is this, that we are legally declared by God, sinless and perfect at the same time. Justification is just as if we had never sinned, but just as if we had lived a life fully pleasing to God in every way. What justification is, is it's a legal declaration. God takes all that belongs to Jesus and he makes it legally belong to you. And so, for instance, if I sell a car, I sign a title, and I sign my car over. That means that someone else legally owns that car. What happens when God declares us justified in Christ is he's saying all that was Jesus's, his life, his obedience, his holiness, his goodness, his love, his righteousness, all, all of it at this point from, from now and, and eternity, it legally is yours in my eyes. And what was his, legally in my eyes, was all of your sin that you're ashamed of. Do you realize that? Your guilt, your shame, your sin legally became Christ on the cross. God is not counting it against you. He counted it against Christ. All that Christ had was transferred and imputed to you. Therefore, you are justified. And so what is said is, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, not by works, not by efforts, but by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace because we've been justified by God. Christmas and the baby in the manger is about a macrocosmic problem. It's that humanity is at odds with God, enemies. And so Jesus stepped in to say, I am the only person, the Prince of Peace, who can solve this problem. You need God's good pleasure and you need God's presence. And you can't get either of those without me. That's what he was doing. But it's, it's really interesting. Some of the early martyrs were struggling and wrestling with this. Why does it seem that Jesus didn't die in a heroic fashion? They started to ask this question. Because you can look at Polycarp, one of the early church fathers, and when he was killed, they were tying him down and burning him alive. And he said, you don't have to tie me down. I'm not going anywhere. So he had these very heroic words. You can also look at Peter, and through church history, we understand that when he was being led off to be crucified, that he was crucified upside down, but, but, but he shouted to his wife, he said, remember our Lord, heroic words. How come on the cross it didn't seem heroic for Jesus as he cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's anything but a picture of peace. Because at that moment, the Prince of Peace was at war with God on our behalf so that we could be reconciled and at peace with God for eternity. If Christ did not go to war on our behalf on the cross and lose his peace in that moment, we would not be reconciled to God and have peace for eternity. What Christ was doing on the cross was reconciling and restoring us to God. We can go back to Luke now. Flip back there with me. Luke says this. 
He recounts this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth among those with whom he is pleased. If you want peace, you need not something removed, not techniques. You need God's pleasure and you need God's presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C, not like presence under a Christmas tree. That's what you need. In Christ, what do you have? When Jesus was baptized, God declared, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. When you have placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, God's declaration to you is this is my son or this is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. God is just as pleased with you as he is with his son and Jesus Christ and his work because he legally made it belong to you. So if you're ever wondering, are you God's displeasure? Is God not pleased with you? I would tell you when God chooses to look at you, when you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus, God literally sees his son's work on your behalf and he says, I'm pleased. That's what brings us peace, to know at a macrocosmic level that we have God's pleasure and we have his presence. It's not just enough for God to say, I, I, I put your sin on Jesus. It's, it's also not even enough that God said, I made you perfect and righteous by imputing his righteousness to you. What God says is now you've been reconciled and restored back into a right relationship with me and you will never lose my presence. You see, the reason why Polycarp and Peter could cry out heroic words is because on their deathbed, they had God's presence active in their life because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. In their greatest moment of horror, they knew this. They were not being punished based upon their sin or something they did wrong, that God was pleased with them. Therefore, they could cry out because they knew that they had God's presence with them. I think of another story that comes to mind, and I've shared it multiple times. It's the story of Horatio Spafford, who lived in in the 1800s. And I know I've shared this story multiple times, but it's very applicable to what we're looking at today. Horatio Spafford wrote this song that we're gonna close out with as our final song today called, It Is Well. But if you don't know his story, it's remarkable because Horatio lost his 14-year-old son in 1871 to the Chicago fires, and he lost a lot of his wealth as a businessman. In 1873, he sent his wife and his four daughters off to England to go to the Moody evangelical crusades. And he was going to go with them on the ship, but he thought, man, I still have some work to do. I need to send them ahead. The ship went under and his four daughters drowned and his wife alone survived. She wrote back to him only two words, saved alone. When Horatio boarded the ship to go meet his wife in England, the captain of the ship, whenever they crossed over the, uh, the area where the ship sunk, told Horatio, he said, this is where your daughters went down. Restless, he went back to his room and wrote the song that we know today, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Listen to the lyrics that are sung in the song. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea bellows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Oh Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well. It is well with my soul. What leads a writer to say these things? 
He just lost. I mean, he's lost his 14-year-old son. He's lost all four of his daughters. And he says, the bliss of this glorious thought, not my sin in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. He, know, he knew in the, in the deepest pain of life, I, I can't imagine more pain than losing a loved one, especially a child. What, 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 what leads him to worship and to get through this time is this, that still at the end of this day, God has dealt with my macro problem. And I know this, because of what was nailed to the cross, I am not being punished by God. Because of what my Savior endured, I can have peace in this horrific time because I know that God is not punishing me. It's like in 1 John 4, 18 through 19, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Also says in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. Horatio could rejoice and have peace because at the end of the day, he knew that he wasn't being punished by God because Christ had already done that for him. And whatever trial you're going through, whatever circumstance you find yourself in today, you can have peace and a lasting peace through knowing this, that you have God's pleasure, that he's pleased with you, and that you have his presence with you in your life right now. Think about David. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which some of you might feel like you're in right now, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I have techniques? Because I have good news? Yes, that God is with me. As I walk through the valley, uh, the, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because, for, you are with me. So what do we do in light of this? First, our simple prayer is this. Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. I believe this is true, but I so often believe and am restless to think that there's so many things that I need to do in order to make myself pleasing in your sight. So help my soul to believe this. I would encourage you guys, challenge you just like a couple weeks ago, declare out as we sing this last song, sing it as though you're preaching this message to yourself and to those around you that it is well within my soul because of what Christ has done. Next, I like what Keller says, but because we understand God's love for us and the peace that we have with God, we need to transition and move our love to the immutable. God is unchanging. And if we continue to give our hearts to the changing things of this world, a relationship, a spouse, those things, they will always fall short. If we move and direct our love to glory to God, if everything in life that we do, our work, our hobbies, and everything is for God's glory, not for our gain or for our glory, but for God's glory, and we start loving God, who's immutable, he can't ever fail us. So it's redirecting our love away from mutable things. And there are many people that think for sure, man, if only... I can fix the mess that I'm in right now. If only I can fix my marriage. If only I can fix the situation with my boss. If only I can fix all these things that are going on. Even if they're fixed, it could all get jumbled up all over again. The one thing that will never change is who God is and his love and faithfulness toward you. Our marriage covenant is what should bring us peace. Not the state of our marriages, what's going on in them, but the actual covenant is what should bring peace. But even that shouldn't bring peace. Our covenant with God should bring us peace, knowing that God will never change and that he will never change on us. His feelings, his affection is what should carry us and give us peace. Next, we should live consistent with our new nature. Look, you're not going to have peace when God takes you and he makes you a new creation. 
He justifies you and makes you perfect in his eyes. He places a spirit inside of you to live and dwell there. You will not have peace if you continue to run after sin in this world. Why? Because the spirit of God lives inside of you. God is redirecting your heart and your emotions to love him instead of all the other created things with all of your heart and affections. You will not live at peace when you are loving other things more than the Prince of Peace. Next, as Christians, we need to recognize that everyone in this world has this peace problem and that God has strategically placed you in the workplace with the neighbors that you have because your neighbors are at odds with God. Enemies, your your neighbors are restless. We who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us are still restless with the Spirit of God inside of us. There are people who are so restless that God has placed in our influence. We cannot live idle lives, but what we do when we recognize that we have the gift of peace given to us by God's good pleasure with us, given to us by God's lasting presence in our life, given to us by ultimately the Prince of Peace, we share the message of peace with the world we live in. We have to do that because our world is broken. We're gonna sing a couple songs. Like I said, the last song we're gonna sing is It Is Well. Remember this, that peace is found in pleasure and presence. And you have God's pleasure and you have God's full presence because of the work that Christ did and completed for you.